This is an ABC podcast. The natural beauty of Ireland is a wonder to behold. And the countryside in Northern Ireland is particularly stunning. It's rugged and wild and windswept in parts. But elsewhere, it's sweet and gentle. This is where Dara McAnulty has lived all his life. Dara describes himself as a naturalist, a conservationist, an activist, and a writer. And he's the author of a book that's become an international sensation. Dara McAnulty's book, Diary of a Young Naturalist, was awarded the Wainwright Prize for Nature Writing. And it's a joy to read. It's so full of feeling and close observation and deep knowledge written by someone who feels all the exhilaration and wonder of the natural world. Diary of a Young Naturalist is his first published book because Dara is 17 years old. The diary covers a year in his life, from spring equinox to spring equinox, from his 14th to his 15th birthday. I spoke with Dara in 2020 in our late springtime when Ireland was heading into winter. Dara, everything's upside down between us. It's spring here and late autumn where you are. Um, it's early morning when I'm talking to you and it's late at night for you. T- tell me yeah. more about the part of Ireland you're talking to me from. So at the moment I'm nestled in the in between the, the Moran Mountains, which is our, uh, Northern Ireland's highest um, mountain range, although they're kind of, some would say that maybe they're not mountains, but they're, they're the the guards that um, keep us uh, keep us safe every day, and we've also beside the sea, and and also the the forests, and we're almost in this um, where I live. I'm in this sort of like the converging point between these three incredible places, and they sort of like meld into each other into this beautiful sort of swirl of habitat. It is a beautiful, beautiful place from which you can go up into the mountains and you can just see for miles and miles and miles. And it's, it's, it's just such a beautiful place that seems to encapsulate all of the different types of place that we have here in one concentrated little spot. And it's, it's, it's so beautiful. I, 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 it took me a book to describe it. It's it's that beautiful. When you go climbing up in the Mourne Mountains, what kind of birds do you see? Um, so we w- I would see skylarks and meadow pipits, which are um, frustratingly at times similar birds. Um, although when you get to know them, the skylarks have these this almost crest um, that that they flick up um, during the breeding season. Um, and they've got this beautiful, beautiful song where they will rise up into the air um, and just sing and sing and sing um, to the sky. And it, it's when you're watching it, you just get completely entranced by this this dance that they're doing and this, this call. And as you're up on the mountains, does it, when you hear it, it makes you feel like spring has arrived <laughs> And also that you're, you just get so enthralled by it 
that I think you lose most senses of what's going on around you when you're watching the Skylark. I I think one of the great things about where I live at the moment is that we've got lots of birds of prey. Um, for example, the the red kite, which was actually newly inter- reintroduced here. Um, to, it was in 2008 when it was reintroduced back here. And it was the thing that actually got me into into raptors and birds of prey was this fascination with this incredible bird. I remember um, they they came in and did a talk at um, my primary school when I was really, really small. And I remember I just spent the entirety of the day just looking up um, <laughs> these birds of prey and then expanding out into all sorts of endangered birds. And it was the sort of a really glorious sort of um, fascination with the natural world that had been growing. But at that point, I think, is the turning point of where I went. I actively sought out information. And it was all started by those by those red kites. And luckily now, by coincidental chance, where I live now is where they were first released, um, just behind me, about five minutes' walk, which I discovered by a happy chance almost that that, that happens and it it feels almost poetic that i that i begin to settle down at the place where the bird that captured my heart all those years ago when i was a young young child that i now live beside it Dara, I have this image of you in my mind, standing on top of the Moon Mountains with the, I, I, I don't know, the, the bracing spray of the of the sea in your face, or the drizzle of rain in, in in your face, with electric green, rolling hills and birds of prey doing these incredible performances for you in the sky. Am I far wide of the mark here? Am I exaggerating, or is that pretty much how it is? Yeah, um, the, the 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 mountains kind of roll straight into the sea, so there's there's this. The mountains are really, really important um, to me, and all of their separate names like Berna, Comoda, Donard, Mielbjog, um, Mielmoor, and all of these mountains, as they sort of, I, I, I described them in my book as almost um, reaching up to honored which is the tallest and no one could, none of them are like always, always like reaching up at it grasping to try and get there but always like slipping down and some of them slip down into the sea and so you've got this really in, in, intense sort of place and I think it's pretty close although um, the grass up in the moors is a bit darker it's um, a, a wind-beating grass, if you kind of get what I mean. Mm. Like, like I said, you're coming into winter at the moment. Is this a yeah. melancholic time for you or a, or, or a happy time? This is, um, I think it's almost a, a both of those times for me. It's the time of um, remembering, it's the time of thinking and trying to work out what is going on in the world. When I, my brain can allow to expand into the emptiness that is winter, because winter is a the the leaves fall off the trees, the snow is a a white blankness, and it's it, it gives you space to grow and to move into, and there's less of that bombardment that is coming on all around you, and you can sort of think, and 
for me, that can bring on that melancholy times as I think about all that has been lost and all that we could be doing, but also great happiness at seeing what has happened in the world, um, what is happening in the world that is good and is joyful, and to be able to celebrate that in my mind, which I can do in winter, gives me that great happiness. Winter in Northern Europe has this electrifying effect on Australians, Dara. I, I spent two months in, um, in, in the Czech Republic uh, at the beginning of last year and when snow came down silently overnight and I walked outside to find the world white and qu- so quiet as a result of it, I, I was just so happy and so, so full of joy at that, that way everyone, of course, just treated it as a nuisance because they're so used to it. What effect does <laughs> newly laid snow have on you? I, th- I don't know... There's there's two types of snow I think um, to most people's eyes, but there's only one to mine. So some people see snow as before or after Christmas. If it's before Christmas, it's good snow. It is past <laughs> Christmas, it's bad snow. Yes, <laughs> because like if it's before Christmas, oh my god, we're going to get a white Christmas. Mm-hmm. If it's past it, um, then it's like oh, <laughs> you're <Bloody> late. Snow. <laughs> <laughs> but I, for me, it's always encapsulate this beauty because. You, you, as you said, you come out from uh, your your home and you look out of the window, and the world has completely changed overnight, and it's just this whiteness, and that silence that you or don't hear, I guess, um, is a, a property of snow because of the way that it um, reflects sound. It well, it. It baffles reflect it. Sound. It, it. It baffles it, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, it baffles it, and the sound just kind of gets trapped in the snow, and it creates this eerie sort of feeling of, um, and, it, and it, uh, like I said before, it allows you to grow into it. We have a, um, I re- I remember one of the times that I was out in the, in the snow. It was in the Moor Mountains, and everywhere. Um, because in the Moor Mountains, it's like um, it can have completely different weather to everywhere else around it. So you go up into them. We got, went up into the Moorns one day, and it just started snowing. It was not snowing anywhere else, um, but it just started snowing and into a complete blizzard. And I remember when the snow stopped fa- falling for a while. You got you get this feeling of. Eerie, that eerie sort of feeling that everything and nothing is there and that sort of feeling, um, we have an Irish word for it, it's called wakeness and it's one of my favourite words it's that idea that there can be a silence that speaks louder and to the soul and to the mind and that for me is the one of my most joyous feelings well, not joyous, it's more somber than that. But it it's a happy feeling, a contented feeling of being able to look out upon this this landscape and just feel everything and nothing and it's it, it's a it's an exquisite feel it's sorta of trying to explain it because everybody's definition of weakness is is different because it's what it is for them. But for me it's looking out into fog, mist and snow. You adv- your advice in your book, even for people living in the suburbs, is to pay attention, pay more attention to what's going on. 
How do you do that? What's your advice on how to pay attention to nature, even when you're living in the burbs somewhere? Um, I think the best way is to try and notice the little tiny things because the little tiny things amount to this bigger picture. I used to live in the um, city of Belfast as a child and I would just be picking up everything that I came across and those little details built up my world in a pretty um, almost sterile and well sterile environment that was in a congested city but these little treasures that I found I cherished and they gave life to a almost um, what I was feeling as a kind of a dry dead zone but all of these little things these little things that I coveted and I treasured and they and finding those things not necessarily taking them home but just getting a chance to notice them I think is um, the best way because that's what you you do out in the forest. You notice things, and I think if we just take that few few seconds or a few minutes just to take a quick look around us and see what is what is alive and what pr po possible processes are going on, and then just wonder at the entire complexity of this world and how beautiful and how wondrous it is, and and just just think wow, it's, this is a beautiful world, isn't it? And it just, it, it gives me, every day I do that, and it just gives me that sort of determination to keep on going for every day, because this world is, it, it just, it fills you up and it makes you feel whole, and it is, uh, because it is a part of you, the world, it's a, it's a part of us. And I, I think when we learn to recognize that, we learn to recognize a part of ourselves. As you say that, I'm just remembering when I was a small boy, I used to do things like look at beetles, look closely at beetles as they sort of scuttled across the concrete, you know, and, and poke them gently with a little stick or something. And then I stopped doing that. And I don't know why I stopped doing that. Have you just, have you just never stopped doing that in a way, never stopped looking at beetles and, and things that grow up through a crack in the footpath? Yeah, I don't, I don't think I ever stopped because um, I don't really have the sense of, childishness i just see childishness as putting a filter on joy almost mm. and i i kind of uh, what's wrong with feeling things as a child does that asking the the question why and trying to work it out for yourself and that's why i constantly try to do in every single day of my life is to explore what is going on around me and constantly ask that question why why is the why does the beetle have six legs? Why does this beetle have only five? Um, why um, does a spider make its web and then discover that oh it eats the, it uses it to eat flies um, and to build up that picture of my world? And I think sometimes we gain we think we have knowledge, and so we stop looking for it and. In the end, we we end up missing the biggest picture of them all, and I, I I I'm I'm searching every day for for that little nugget of information that almost reveals the entire everything to me. And you get these revelations every single time you you go outside and you notice something.
podcast, broadcast, and online. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. This is a bit of Blackbird's song from near from where you live. Dara, what thoughts and memories come to mind when you hear that Blackbird song? I think the first memory that comes to my mind is that memory from oh so long ago as a young child watching the shadow play on the curtains as this Blackbird sung its song from a aerial that above our house and I could see its shadow um, being cast onto the the curtains, just watching it, and then crawling out of bed and touching the the shadow. And every single day, I would look at this 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 beauty, not really wanting to look behind the curtain in case I scared it away, but just watching the shadow. And then one day, I st- stuck down and to to take a look at it, and it was a sort of connection that I had and the day that it um, stopped singing was quite traumatic for me because I I didn't know at that time that they only sung during a certain time of the year and I vowed that I would basic, I vowed almost like a secret vow to myself that I would never be surprised by that sort of thing again and that I would read up on everything and gain all of the knowledge I could um, unluckily, I was surprised. I've been surprised multiple, multiple, multiple times in my life um, because nature just—it just no matter what you do, it always finds that way of no matter you say I'm going to read up as much about this subject as possible. It always finds a way of sort of creeping, creeping past, and then this—it sort of takes you off guard sometimes. And I think that was a lesson that I learned there that. You you cannot know. Um, you you experience the world and you learn through experiencing it, and that memory has stuck with me all my life. And every time I hear the blackbird song, I, it comes back to me that um, shadow play, and the blackbird has always been important to me because of that, and it always has almost symbolized for me that gaining of knowledge and the connection that I have with nature. Your early years were in the west, the western county of Northern Ireland, County Fermanagh. 
I, I remember when I, I've only been through there once, Dara, but I remember it being, uh, I remember the, the west coast of, of Ireland and the east coast being so different. The west being uh, facing out onto the Atlantic, being much more rugged and wild and windswept and the sky being way like a million miles above your head. But on the east coast where you are now, it's the sky's lower and um, the countryside is sweeter and, and more gentle. Was it, was it rugged and wild in the countryside in Fermanagh? Am, am I imagining that? Because this is a while ago since I was there. Is that how it is? Yeah, that is completely how it is. Um, there is a diff- definitely a different feel to the west side of Ireland. It is definitely a lot more rugged because the Atlantic is a it's a harsh ocean. It's a, it batters the sides, and all Fermanagh is landlocked, but um, it's known as the the Lakelands because of the amount of lakes it has, and it also it. I almost, um, it also has the Kolka Mountains, so it's almost like I swapped out um, mountains from the gentle, it's it's kind of almost um, paradoxical that the harsh landscape of Fermanagh would have the, the gentle, almost, mountains, the gentle limestone mountains of uh, Kolka, and then over in the east, which is, I do think, a lot um, less of that ruggedness and that harshness that you get in on the west side um but the the mountains the the more mountains are strong and guarding and they they rear up and a lot more they seem a lot more vigorous and almost completely different to land that surrounds them in a sense and they guard over you. So I've, in, it's almost a different sort of protection because I do think that mountains, um, they, they they guard, they watch over you every day, uh, especially for me because I can look out into the mountains, and they're that sort of constant factor that I'm always, I'm always, they're always with you, and I replace the mountains, the gentle mountains of Kolka, with the the guard towers, um, of the Mourns. You've mentioned the, the Mourn Mountains are like guardian mountains to you. What are they guarding against or for? For, for me, it's they, they guard against almost um, the human world for me because the, I find the human world to be distressing for a long, long time. It overwhelms me and I, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm drowning and that constancy with the, with the mountains... They they provide almost that watching eye that'll look after me wherever I go um, around County Down. They'll always be looking and looking forward and back and in the present, and they'll always be with me. And that feel that sort of thing where I can, if I'm having a really bad day, I can just go out and look at the mountains and knowing that they were there on the good days as well as the bad, gives me that sort of reassurance that these mountains have lasted for millions and millions of years. I can last out for a day. Um, it, it fills me with hope. And I think that hope um, almost acts as that shield to protect me against the, the worst of the world. And I think that's how they guard me. But... I'm I'm making sort of guesswork of this, but 
I it's almost instinctual on the instinctual level, knowing it. I I know it in in my heart, and it's so uh, half of our life is trying to work out those why we feel things. That feeling you talk about about feeling overwhelmed by the world. You, you write that uh, you, your mum and your brothers and sisters are all autistic. Uh, it's only your dad that is not. I wonder what it's like when the family goes for a walk into the wild. It must be amazing. I mean, I have, imagine you're sort of looking at things with great intensity. What's, what's that like for when the family goes as a whole into the wild for a, a walk? Um, usually there, um, quite a bit of the time, the, the walking can abruptly stop because we were, we're noticing something at like every few meters. So um, when the, they say, oh, this walk should take about like 20 minutes, it'll take it like an hour because we're like noticing stuff and stopping and wait and waiting and watching because we're all so fascinated by the world that surrounds us and all of these little details that we can't just go for a walk and just walk it. Um, my my little sister, um, Lana, um, she's got the most incredible eye for insects. She'll be able to like spot a, um, a little um, ladybird in a in a bush like ten meters away, and I've got like um, go right up to it and go, "Oh my god, how did you see that?" <laughs> um, <laughs> so you don't get very far sometimes. You only it, make it about twenty meters sometimes for all the yeah, stopping and looking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it's a surprise that the um, that we even get um, walk anywhere at all. <laughs> but I think that is why we go outside, though, is, is to have those experiences. I think that's the the whole entire point. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Dari, your dad's a scientist and he sometimes brings his work home with him. What's it like when he brings home injured animals in need of care? Um, my dad was a bat worker and so... The the bats because my um my room was slightly colder and because I liked the bats, <laughs> um, the the bats would come to basically um, live in my room, and a good few times I would be sleeping in my in my bed and the the bats just like started rustling about in, in this little box that was being um, um precisely um made sure that it's got the air holes and food and water and caring after these bats became like a sort of ritual that when all of the bats sort of emerge after a hibernation you get like these um, stragglers you sometimes like fall out of the colony and stuff and you leave or they get trapped in a house or something or get injured and you've got to take care of them they're beautiful things we don't have that many species of bats I, I remember those nights um, being with any of the bats and hearing their little old chirping when their, their little squeaks, um, you sort of go off to sleep with this 
chirping in your head and you always have dreams of bats and it's they're magical creatures aren't they they they've they fill you up with with their joy in the world because they like swoop all it they swoop and they fly and they just seem to have so much joy in life and that joy is almost um infectious in a sense you just you just can't help but smile at their excitement and their energy for all things and it just filled me with happiness um being around them though this is the anti-batman story you know this is how bruce wayne became batman it was because <laughs> a bat came into his room at night he was and he vowed to dress up as a bat and war on crime except the bat seems to have had the complete opposite effect on you it's made you feel like at one with the world and like the world is a good place yeah the the bats for me almost embody that joy in the things that maybe some other people may not like because they love the night which um some humans uh, quite a lot of humans don't really like going out in the night time but they but the bats they live for it their their entire bodies they've got echolocation so they can see in the night and that um going and trying to take to almost carve out their little way in the world and being s- still so full of happiness almost um it, it it drives you forward into this idea that yes we can we can all feel joy at the world even if things seem to be going pretty pear shaped um you can still um feel that intense joy in the world that surrounds you. The way you write about being in the suburbs and at school, it, it for you, it, it seems quite dreamlike. It's like one of those unsatisfying dreams you have where everything's fo- foggy and blurry and nothing quite sort of settles into its right shape. But but the natural world is like razor-sharp reality. Is that is that how you see the world of, of school and of the world of nature, Dara? I'm kind of yeah because when I'm out into the into the human world or the real world as some people may may call it um everything is quite bombarding and overloading so I sort of try and block things out and everything sort of gets a bit hazy very very quickly as I try to make get my body to a stable stable um reading so I've got to, like cut stuff out in my head to make it all a bit more manageable but out in nature i can i can focus I, all of the colors are a bit more much more manageable and the sounds more um a piece of my mind that i can sort of um feel like i can i can experience every detail without getting overwhelmed and so i i see this is all a lot more crystal clear than the human world where everything, I'm just trying to basically stay afloat. Um, nothing much more about in nature. I'm, I'm, tr- I'm actively trying to observe and go further than just existing. <laughs> and I, that, that, that does like you, you, that, um, um, every, every time I try and explain this because it's to do with my, my autism. Um, how I experience the world. And every time I um, I get asked about this, I try to um, delve deeper into the reasons behind it. And you've you've I'm almost triggered a really interesting little point about 
that that I see things a lot more crystal clear um, in nature, and that's not that's something that I haven't really actually thought about, and, and it's and it's so true that I I, I just sort of blur over everything um, in the human world because I'm just focused on getting through the day. And then I go into nature, and it's like like coming home. First time I went to Iceland, not Ireland, but Iceland, Tara, I was taken into a cave on a farm in the south of Iceland. And it's where uh, a, a group of Irish monks used to live, about 1,600, uh, 1, 1,500 years ago. It's not well known, it's probably well known in Ireland, but the Vikings weren't the first people to come to Iceland. The first people to go there were Irish monks who somehow sailed in leather boats out of the north of Ireland and landed in Iceland and lived in caves like hermits, eating oh, fish and berries and birds and whatever else they could, they could get in that sort of extraordinary volcanic landscape. And it's, an, it's a hell of a thing, Dara, to see a, a Celtic cross inside a cave in, in, in Iceland that's yeah. that old. Do you feel some kinship with those early Irish monks and saints who lived so close to nature? Yeah, um, the, uh, a funny thing is that uh, there's maybe some reports that they may have made uh, made it to America as well um, in those letter boats somehow. The, these Irish monks were very... Um, they knew how, how how to go in boats because, like, they were incredible. I, um, they made a new discovery. The fact that they haven't found this um, only until recently will tell you how almost in, um, insane this is. It's completely is insane. That they found, <laughs> we've got these two um, rocks almost in the middle and in, in, um, that go, kind of go into the Atlantic Ocean um, called um, the Skellig Islands. And uh, there was a Irish early Irish monk um, colony there and they sort of, uh, it was where they um, went to be at peace and to escape from the world. And on the one of the smaller islands, um, they found this almost oratory up on the top of a cliff um, that hadn't been had never been scaled by like modern climbers. And they they kind of just climbed up to the top of it, and they found a monk's oratory <laughs> at the top of it. Wow! And it looked as though they had to like have foods like on a pulley system up to them. Like it's incredible that the lengths that these people went to um, almost remove themselves from the human world. And sometimes I wish I could do that. I could just um, escape and just live with myself and um, out in the wilds. This cave in Iceland is pretty nice. Dara, yeah, this is a pretty nice cave. <laughs> if you get like, running water in there, that'd be a nice thing, perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I noticed in lovely. your I, I noticed in your book how how alive you are to old Irish folklore, and you, you were talking there about the mountains of Morn being like guardians for you. But uh, you're also very aware of old, old, old Irish legends about fairies, will of the wisps, and banshees. How closely tied are those stories to natural phenomena that you see all the time? around Ireland? So for me, stories and the, the myths, they, they're, they're one of my um, 
things that I take a lot of joy from is hearing these these stories because they show the explanations that the people of long ago had for the things that happened to the land. Like I think this shows you how almost new the Celts were to the to the land because the the Neolithic people had come had been there beforehand and they have stories for the for the tombs that were on top. Um, that a a carlicha or a witch had scattered these stones across the the mountains as um, to mark the burial grounds of fairies, um, and these stories I think enrich the way that we experience um, the land. Is that human element? Is it's the humans have found ways of creating these stories and those stories have evolved over time that idea that a story can have so much knowledge within it mesmerizes me that all of these generations after generation of passing on these stories and their experiences and you get this almost collage of this kaleidoscope of um, human beauty and the na- and the landscape and the natural world almost entwining into this um this knot this Celtic knot that almost ties together the the world that we live in and I think that that human explanation for the things that they didn't understand um, I think is really really special. Uh, uh, this is the sound of another bird that lives in your area. It's a, it's a corncrake. I don't think I've ever heard a bird song like that before. It sounds like, I don't know, something being winched like a fishing rod or something like that. Um, what, is, what, is that what is that song? What is that, what's the story behind that? That unusual cry of the corncrake, Dara. Um, that that call it it almost brings tears to my eyes hearing it because that call would have been heard in every single field in Ireland um, until very very recently. It was it was every, um, the corncrake was was everywhere and. That song almost encapsulates all that we've lost for me because at the moment there's very, very few um, there's very, very few birds left. And I remember I was in Rathlin Island when I heard one. It was evening, dusky evening. And I was look me and my family had stopped and we were looking out onto um, the reed beds. And the that call almost reverberated out from it, and I I remember it. It just took hold of me, and the everybody around me was smiling and was happy, but all I could feel in in me was this deep melancholic sadness. That this was all that was left. That this, from such a popular species, this is a beautiful creature. This is all that was left, and 
it's it, it, uh, that call. It's an incredible call as well. It's so different to any other bird that that crake. It's uh, its Latin name is cracks cracks, which completely sums up the noise <laughs> that it makes, and it it just symbolizes for me that ev- that idea that that a bird that can be so populous that can be heard in every single field in a maybe in half a century can completely disappear and that fragility of life the male it's it's the male that calls and that male will basically keep on calling through the night and through the next day and through the next night and through the next day until it finds a female and because no females really make it anymore it'll be it'll keep on calling forever um until it until it leaves and it just it's so sad that this beautiful beautiful creature is almost damned to this to this fate of coming year upon year with hope in its heart and every year nothing Yes, finally, Dara. Australia is um, a very, very beautiful place, but in a completely different way to the country you live in. Like, there's a lot of large parts of Australia, the ground is red, not on the coasts, but in the interior and, and in the north. Uh, the weather is different. The bird song is completely different. I wonder what it would be like for you to suddenly get on a plane and arrive in Australia and walk out into the natural world and what effect would that would have on you? Would it be like being on another planet or something? I think I'd have maybe like three days of being in nervous breakdown because I've got no idea what on earth is going on and everything that I've known about (laughs) where I live is completely different and I've got like almost start to relearn everything so it may take like three days to get over that um but then I probably just start exploring and trying to build up that picture once I've broken through that mental barrier and trying to explore all of that bird song and pick it apart in my head until I gain that understanding and it would take years upon years but I would desperately try to make sense of this very that, that very different world because I can hardly, scarcely even imagine what red ground lo- feels like. Um, because here the ground is is brown and dark and soil, and it that and also probably the heat would probably kill me because mm. I like just burn up instantly. Um, <laughs> I, I just step out of the plane and just evaporate. Um. Well, I, I have Irish ancestry as well, and I've got to tell you, our skin isn't made for the climate. It's not too well suited for no. <laughs> we just sort of We turn bright red and then we burn and then uh, we get cancer and then we die pretty much. That's how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Still, nonetheless, Dara, I, I think the idea of you coming here one day and disappearing into the wild for, for quite some months and then writing a beautiful book would be the most wonderful <laughs> thing in the world. Um, I hope it happens one day, Dara. Yeah, it would be a beautiful experience to rediscover a landscape for the first time, to, to start that journey of discovery over again while, while I'm conscious might be, in, would be very, very interesting in, that, in a completely different, almost a different world. 
Dara, I've so enjoyed our conversation. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you. I know it's a school night for you and you've got to get up in the morning and go to school. I appreciate you staying up late in, uh, in Northern Ireland to have our chat. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been amazing to talk about all of these things that I feel so passionately about. It does, it, it, it makes me feel good about myself and that we can all make a difference together. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.